No, so, all right, as you can tell, we're going to be talking about being set apart. Did you make that graphic, Mom, or did you just... Okay, I was going to say, it's really good, but not to say it, never mind, don't worry about it. Oh, how's everyone doing? It's been a while since I got to preach, so I'm nervous, but I'm excited at the same time. Um, but so we'll have some fun. Mom's right, I have been going to seminary, and I've been having a great time. Uh, right now, my favorite class is probably my church history class, which is actually kind of where this message sort of came from. We had a really cool discussion about um, a book that I read and had to write a paper on a couple weeks ago, and it brought up this idea of what does it actually mean to be in the world but not of the world. Fun fact, that phrase, being in the world and not of the world, is actually not in the Bible. I, you did? I, yeah, well, I think it was, was it like Billy Graham who yeah. like coined the phrase? Um, it comes from John 17, and there are the words the world and of and things, but the actual phrase being in the world, not of the world, is not in the Bible. So, but it's still really good. I think it's still something we can latch on to, just like, what would Jesus do? I think that's kind of cool, too. I missed, I missed my old WWJD bracelets. Um, and anyway, in this paper that I wrote. It was about a book called The Rise of Christianity by a guy named Rodney Stark, which he's not a Christian. He was a, he's a professor of social sciences somewhere. I'm not exactly sure. I can't remember. But he wrote this like history of Christianity, the, like the first few hundred years. But in it, his whole argument was, you know, the rise of Christianity wasn't like miraculous or unique. Traditionally, most Christian scholars look at Christianity exploding to being half of pretty much the population of the world in only a few hundred years is something that is completely unique in of itself. It's not something that is, you know, would normally happen, right? But he wanted to come in and argue, be like, well, no, there's these reasons, these reasons, these reasons why Christianity was able to flourish, right? And so he's trying to argue away the miraculous. And in it, um, he had two main arguments. I'll just sum it up. There's a point to this. I don't want to bore you. But um, he was talking about that Christian, uh, Christians in the early church um, had really good networks in that they evangelized to their friends. It wasn't like these big um, Billy Graham-esque crusades where tens upon thousands of people got saved in like one day. Um, he argues that instead it was like hey, I'm a Christian, you look sick, can I help you because Jesus told me to? And that's revolutionary back then in the pagan world, right? So it was the Christian networks and he argued the Christian doctrines. And it got me thinking about, you know, why was it that the early church, what set them apart in such a crazy, immoral, pagan world that still allowed them to grow and be effective and, you know, fulfill the great commission that Jesus called us to. And so that was just kind of what sort of spurred this uh, message on, and um, hopefully it'll actually mean something. Um, fun fact, I actually, um, for the longest time, I always complain that I, I hate sermons that have three points that you can, like, write down, like the little underline. But guess what? I got a three-point sermon. Yeah, so it, it just, I, I'm not like you, Mom. I don't provide notes. I expect people to write their own notes. 
No, I don't. I don't write my own notes. It's no worries. I'm just, I'm just, just playing, just playing. Um, but yeah, no, it came out that I actually have. I was like, oh, I can do three points with. It's actually underlined and everything. So if you want to make your own note card or note uh, taking thing, you can put down the underline and everything. I don't care. But um, so I asked the question myself: What does the Bible say? about both being inside and outside of culture, because the early church found themselves in a really unique position where they were able to fulfill a need that wasn't, that no one was able to. The fact that they were able to um, provide, you know, uh, food for the sick, provide uh, shelter for the orphans, you know, provide resources for the widows, that was something that wasn't normal, but greatly needed. There were like I think over the course of just a couple hundred years, there were two plagues and num- numerous natural disasters that killed off, like, millions of people. I mean, there was one plague, I think it was, like, smallpox, that killed up to a third of the entire empire. The population just straight up gone. But the Christians were in a very unique position to be like, hey, the normal person would throw you to the side and say, oh, you're sick, I don't want to get sick, so I'm going to leave you to the buzzards. But Jesus calls me as a Christian to come in and feed you, nurture you, provide water and, you know, place to sleep to hope that you can get better, even at the cost of my own life, because I might get sick and die as well. And that was revolutionary. That allowed people to be like, oh, there's something, there's some kind of substance to this Christianity. I want to be a part of it. And um, so I started thinking, I was like, where in the Bible does it talk about this being in the world, but not of the world, being in a place of darkness but still being the light and I was like oh the light a light in a dark world the city on the hill so we're going to be looking at Matthew 5. So if you got your Bibles we're in Matthew chapter 5 verses 13 through 16 and I wonder I don't think it's a coincidence that lately we've been talking a lot about the Beatitudes mom and Bob have been preaching on those we had our first two-part sermon series on being a peacemaker which is a beatitude that was really fun, but this is not a beatitude. This actually comes right after the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read it for you. So this is the New American Standard translation, but you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all those who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, um, I'm going to get real nerdy, because now that I'm in seminary, I get to do all the, thanks, I get to do all the the fun, um, boring Bible study stuff. And so, I'm going to start easy, and then it's going to get just absolute gritty boring. We're going to look at Greek words and stuff. It's going to be the worst. Don't worry. But um, one, th- one thing to note um, is that Jesus, when he's talking this particular verse, he's no longer talking to the crowd. So the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking to all the people that are following, giving them, you know, blessed are you, this, blah, da, 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 da. But then after he's done with the Beatitudes, he steps away and starts talking just to his disciples specifically. Um, and I think there is uh, something to be learned there. There's a difference between being a member of, being like a disciple and just being a member of the crowd. Um, when There's a lot of times where I think people call themselves Christians just 
because either they grew up as a Christian, so they're like, oh, I guess I'm a Christian because that's all I know. Sometimes they use it for like maybe an advantage, like, a, you know, I'm going to call myself a Christian to get me the extra Christian votes or something, like political. Sometimes it's like I want to be a Christian maybe because they look cool, but I don't really know anything about it, and I've always thought I was a Christian. But this isn't, this isn't to them. There's a difference between the crowd and the disciple. The crowd includes everybody. When Jesus is speaking to the crowd, he's speaking to the Pharisee. He's speaking to the, the um, you know, just the random followers like, oh yeah, I've been following you since Galilee. You seem cool, so I'm going to follow you around. He's talking to the tax collector, the prostitute, the, uh, the Sadducees, the Essenes, everybody. Whoever's in earshot is the crowd. But the disciple is someone specific. It's someone who is close to Jesus. The closer we are to Jesus, the further apart we are from the crowd. And that's the very first step with being set apart. Um, but another interesting fact about this, this is where it's getting really nerdy. Um, in the Greek, whenever he says you, like you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, that is called the second personal uh, plural pronoun that he's using, which means, for those of you who don't know, he's actually saying y'all. So if you're from Texas, you know, we say y'all. So he's not speaking to one individual person. You know, it's like, Peter, you are the light of the world. John, you are the salt of the earth. He's not doing that. He's talking to his disciples as a collective, as a community. That brings me to point number one. We are set apart to be a community. Um, yeah, it is really good. Thanks. Oh, okay, now you guys are just being annoying. Anyway, it was really fun actually working on this because I got to go to um, utilize the seminary library and read some commentaries. And there's this really, really good uh, um, little paragraph I want to read you guys about, um, about this. It's by R.T. France. He is a commentator for the New International uh, commentary on the New Testament series. Not that you'll ever need to remember that, but it's my favorite commentary series. That's how nerdy I am. But this is what he has to say about it. The hilltop town in verse 14 is a symbol not of a conspicuous individual, but of the collective impact of a whole community. Modern Western individualism is such that we easily think of the light of the world as a variety of little candles shining you in your small corner and I in my corner. But in fact, it is the collective light of the whole community which draws attention from the watching world. And so, Mom, I'm sorry to say, but whenever you prayed for me, you know, be a light in the dark world, whenever I was scared to go to school in like elementary school or middle school, you know, I'm not just a light and small. I'm, I'm supposed to be part of community. We are, we are supposed to be part of a community. When he's talking about the city on the hill, it's a collective of, of lights. It, Things shine brighter when there's more of them. Like, it seems like it could be uh, effective ministry if it's like, all right, we're just going to put one here, one there, one here, one there, and try and spread out our light as far as possible. But unfortunately, when you're by yourself, it can be really easy to be extinguished. It's really easy to burn out when you're by yourself. Um, I think of, like, this is weird, but I think of wildfires, actually. Um, the way you fight a wildfire, if it's a small wildfire, just get a big old bucket from the helicopter and dump it on the wildfire, you're done. 
But when a wildfire starts gaining momentum and starts getting bigger and bigger and bigger, you can't fight it with water anymore. You can't just extinguish it like you normally would. Instead, what you'll see is all these big planes coming in with this like special fire retardant liquid and will actually go in the way of the wildfire and try and contain it and literally just let it burn itself out. Because there's no way when the fire is that intense and there's the wildfire is that big that you can just simply put it out with water. And I think that can be really similar to us as a community of believers. When we're together and we're all shining brightly together, we can't be extinguished. There's, being burnt out is not a thing. Um, but at the same time, we are supposed to be the city on the hill because we're being watched by the rest of the world. You know what it says? Uh, a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. It gives light to all who are those in the house. Which brings me to point number two, going quickly. We are set apart not for ourselves, but for others. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah? When, when I was uh, reading on this and doing some re- uh, studying and research, I was thinking about when Jesus was talking to the Pharisee about how to pray and where to pray. And I thought it was interesting that when he's talking to the Pharisee who says, oh yeah, I pray out on the corner, you know, where all can see and all can see how righteous I am. Jesus comes in and says, no, if you're going to pray, go find a quiet place by yourself and pray just between you and God. It's a very secret, personal thing. But in this situation, he's, uh, Jesus says, no, you need to be seen. You need to be visible. You need people to actually be affected by your prayer because it's not an individual thing. It's a community thing that we do for the sake of others. Um, <laughs> so when I was at The Rock, I was part of, I did a lot of um, volunteer work for The Grove, specifically their worship team. And I remember there's a time when, uh, and this seems to be extremely popular because so many churches are doing this, but The Grove worship team wanted to try and see if they could put out a worship album. Um, and which was great. I loved it. And so they're like, hey, let's go on a songwriting retreat. And so we all went, you know, so it was me. It, for those of you who remember Sarah, um, she was part of it. And pretty much everybody who considered themselves part of the Grove worship team for the young adult ministry, we went up to uh, our worship leader's house and we had like a little mini teaching before we just sat down with some guitars and just started writing music. But I remember that in the little teaching Um, We watched a video where the guy was talking about how Christians are supposed to be the salt of the earth. We are supposed to, you know, bring creativity and culture and, you know, make make the world a, a brighter place, you know, taste better through salt, you know, being salt. And I was, so that's always how I looked at this verse was like, oh yeah, I'm supposed to just, you know, be fun or just, you know, be different for different sake. But in fact, that's not really what it probably means. Because um, it doesn't answer the question of um, why. What's the purpose of, is, are we salty to be salty? Which sounds really weird when I say that out loud. But are we supposed to be different to be different? Or is there a purpose for it? Um, and it got me thinking, you know, what, what is the purpose of salt? What does it do? It, it, you, salt, you need something to salt. You need some meat, some soup, some, something needs to be salted. Otherwise, just like, what's the point? And even Jesus even said that when he was in the, uh, in the verse. Go back and see it. Um, but if the salt becomes tasteless, how can it be made salt again? It is no longer good for anything 
except to be thrown out and trampled under the foot of men. So if we don't have, if we're not distinct for a purpose of making things taste good, I guess in this sense, there's really no point. What's the point of it, right? But what I think is often um, misinterpreted is that creativity thing, that like, oh, we're supposed to be different, you know, to bring culture, to bring creativity. But back then, that's not what salt did. Salt did, you know, make things taste a little better. But in the ancient days, salt was a preservative. Salt was there to keep things from decaying, from, to keep meat from going bad. Um, and so I, I would think that the disciples, when they're hearing this, is like, oh, we're supposed to, you know, preserve the world around us. We're supposed to be the thing that saves the world, so to speak, to keep it from corrupting. And in fact, I went and found out that um, an old guy named Origen, who was an ancient patristic father, he actually said the same thing. So I was like, sweet, how awesome is that? Um, and in fact, uh, when, when I was talking about this paper, um, uh, my professor actually brought this idea up of, um, have you guys ever heard of St. Benedict? Like I said, I'm, this is me pretty much just talking about what I'm learning at seminary because it's fun and I think it's good and I want you guys to know it. Um, but he was talking about St. Benedictine who was the, pretty much invented the St. Benedictine mon- monastic order. He was a monk and he started a monastery. Um, but my professor was talking about how uh, the Benedictine order was placed in a certain time. It started in the Dark Ages, right after the Holy Roman Empire found itself completely gone. It was taken over and destroyed by all the barbarians and Goths. Have you seen Gladiator? Have you seen, you've seen Gladiator, right? Right at the beginning of Gladiator, when all the, the Roman centurions are fighting like those barbarians in the, the, the woods, that's what, was, that's what it was. They were German barbarians. They were pretty much soon after Rome was gone. It was gone. And now Rome was, I, I, I almost, I, I'm afraid to do this, but I think it's, it, it works. It's a good illustration. It's kind of like Rome was the government in, like, look at the American government. If government kind of fell apart now, we would have no infrastructure. You know, I think, to use a term that mom likes to use, the world would go to hell in a handbasket. You know, like, there's a need for the government because it provides infrastructure. It provides resources for society to, you know, thrive and survive, right? But the moment it's gone, this world is, is destroyed. I don't think that the government's going to, like, all of a sudden go away. But if it does, I think we're going to be in a very similar situation to what the Dark Ages were. It was a time of chaos, a time of war. You couldn't go down the street or down the dirt road, I guess, without being, you know, mugged by some bandits or some vagabonds or something like that, right? But there are these things called the, the monasteries, the St. Benedictine monasteries. And what's cool is um, they were kind of like the salt of the earth at, the mo- at their moment in time. They preserved society. Where civilization fell when the Roman Empire um, was destroyed, they were able to hang on to that little bit of sanity left. Um, they uh, were unlike other monastic orders where you think monastery, you think monk, you think hermit. It's like cloistered away out in some like mountain or forest where they can't you know they're just trying to be like I don't want to take any part of the world I just want to do my own thing um they weren't that way instead they found that it was more effective to actually make their monasteries inside of a city like right in the center where they could reach the most people um you like this mom they were preppers they were preppers they they found a uh 
a value in being able to be self-sustaining. So they had monks who were farmers, monks who were stonemasons, monks who were doctors. They had monks who were scholars. They were the ones who actually sat there with each little parchment, parchment, write down the Bible word for word, copy it down so someone else can have a copy. But they also did that with like classic Greek literature, Plato, uh, Socrates, Aristotle. They did that too because they saw value in it. Um, and so they were one of the very few literate societies in Europe at this time. If you grew up a peasant, sorry, you, w- you couldn't read. And you wouldn't ever learn to read because it was not an option in the, you know, five, six hundreds because you're just trying to stay alive from the barbarians. Um, and so uh, even though they had really strict monastic, like, rules, of course. I mean, they worshiped seven times a day. I'm not saying we should be like the Benedictines because they're still in order around today. I don't want to have to wake up every two hours and worship because that's what they did. Um, But they were effective because they saw value in remaining relevant to the world around them. They placed themselves specifically where they were so they could reach the most people while still being different than those around them. Um, You know, back then you would look at the monastery and see that's a safe place. That's a place where I know I can get fed, where I can be protected from, you know, the enemy. Um, and it's a place where I can go even if I'm not a Christian. They're going to be different from me for whatever reason, and they know more things about me, and I don't know, or than me, and I don't know why, but, um, you know, it, it's looked as something as good as wise as, you know, a, a beacon, a city on a hill, somewhere I can go and know that I'll be safe. And I, I find that really fascinating and wonder, what would that look like today? Could the Christian church, Big C Church, Universal Church, be more like that city on the hill, that monastery in that people are no longer looking at Christians like, ugh, y'all are bigots. Y'all hate everybody. Y'all don't want anything to do with me because I'm a sinner. Uh, What if we were like, no, we just have a different way of looking at the world, but we're still going to provide for you because that's what we're called to do. We're not necessarily going to be like you, but we want to be with you. Um, um, Fun fact, the word salt, uh, or not salt, but the word uh, tastelessness in the Greek. This is just fun. I just want to tell you because it's cool. Um, the word is, let's see if I can pronounce this right, morainomai, morainomai, and it's the uh, Greek word we get for moron. So when he's talking about, you know, if a salt loses, it becomes tasteless, it's actually saying probably if a salt becomes foolish, um, then throw it away. And I wonder if the salt, instead of being distinct in so much as like, oh, we're different because we, you know, have guitars in our rock band or in our worship band now, so we're a little bit, you know, edgier because that's what it means to be creative or whatever, you know? Instead of that, it's saying there's a wisdom that Christianity is supposed to have for the world that sets it apart but also sets it um, above and within. There's... Um, a wisdom that we're supposed to have as a church saying like maybe the reason why marriage is failing in in America is because you guys don't understand what marriage is supposed to be you know what how how sacred marriage is it's not you know um, I think there was an article a few weeks ago where the guy interviewed someone from Denver actually a student and he goes what do you why aren't you married you know you're like in your mid-20s and you know, what, what's your stance on marriage? And he says, well, sex is so cheap and so f- easy to get 
that I would rather sleep with as many people as I can before I have to get married. Before I have to get married, right? And, you know, that's, that's wrong. That's, that's not the way it should be. But, you know, that's what society is starting to believe. And so when we're supposed to be set apart, I think it's in the way that we believe, the way that we act. Not necessarily the way we do things, but in the way that we live our lives. The way that we say, no, I'm not just going to go and sleep around because, you know, I want to be pure for my wife. I want to um, show that marriage is an earthly representation of the intimacy that God is going to have with the church, you know? There's, there's something a little bit more to it than just, like, having sex and getting tax breaks. I mean, let's be real, right? Thanks. Thanks. I, preach, I appreciate that. And so, my last point here, point number three, is we are set apart to be in the world, but not of the world. I'm using that phrase as my final point, because I can, and I think it's great. Um, and so, that brings up this question of relevancy. How do we be in the world, but still remain apart from the world? It, it's extremely hard, and I'm probably not going to answer that question today, but I want to pose that question because it's important. Um, uh, when, when Bob found out that I was preaching today, he texted me, he's like, hey man, I'm sorry I'm not going to be there, but I thought about this verse for you, and I, um, I think it's relevant to your message, and so uh, if you'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 9 through 13, this is thanks to Bob, and it's really, it's really good, um, and I think it's a good way to look at it. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers, or with the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world, meaning you'd, pretty much you'd have to be like on a different planet. There's nowhere you can go. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. That's kind of tough to hear. I mean, how many of us in the church are, maybe deal with sexual immorality or maybe have a problem with idolatry or being drunkard sometimes or a swindler, you know? Um, thankfully, I'm not going to spend too much time on this because this could be a whole other sermon. Um, but real quick, when I read that, I think of Paul as talking about the member of the crowd that I was talking about earlier. Someone who's trying to, um, you know, trying to get the best of both worlds. Who's like, yeah, I'll call myself a Christian and be saved, but I'm not going to go and change my life. I don't think that, you know, getting drunk's all that bad, whatever. We're not supposed to associate with them, right? Um, so that's just my little nugget on that. It's, everyone is a sinner. We're, the freaking church is made up of sinners, and we always have um, you know, things that we struggle with, and that's okay, because we are not perfect the moment we are saved. We are, sanctification is an ongoing process that will happen until we die and are with Jesus. Um, so we won't worry about that. Um, instead, I want to focus on that part where he says, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, you would have to go out of this world for that to happen. What he means there is that being in the world 
it's not something we are called to be. It's something that is just going to be whether we like it or not. It is inevitable. It is an inevitable truth of life. We are always going to find ourselves in dark places, however that looks. And instead, we are supposed to live our lives in a way where the world doesn't penetrate in our life and start dictating the way that we live. Because when it starts penetrating in the way, penetrating our lives and telling us how we're supposed to live, we start being those so-called brothers who end up being drunkards, swindlers, sexually immoral, all those people. And we're not supposed, we're supposed to be cast out, right? Um, I don't mean association with the world. That's inevitable. I mean when we allow the world, not the word of God, to dictate how we are supposed to live. That's when compromise starts happening. That's when we start that, that line of how do we remain relevant but still not compromise the gospel. That's when it starts getting really fuzzy. And it starts saying, well, you don't really look much different than the people you're preaching to. Why should you be any different? Why should I listen to you? You're the exact same as me. You're just banging a different drum. You're just saying a few different words in your songs than what I've been saying in my songs, right? Um, the early church found themselves among the most immoral people who have ever walked the earth. A few scary things. Um, look at uh, women in ancient Rome were looked more as like a sexual commodity than actual people because they had a uh, ratio of men to women of like 70 to 30. So there was only like about a third of the actual population of the world was a woman was um, because they didn't have any value on women. In comes the church and says, no, women are just as important as men. There's no hierarchy in this. In fact, not only are they um, valuable and, and uh, equal to men, but they actually have a place of authority in the church. You start seeing deaconesses. There's actually, um, this is, you'll appreciate this again, Mom. Uh, the King James Version is often thought of as the most inaccurate translation of the Bible, which I find interesting. And one of the reasons is because they actually translate the Greek word um, deaconess as servant to try and reduce the role of women in the church, which is dumb and unbiblical. So women have, a, have um, spiritual and ecclesiastical authority in the church. And that was completely revolutionary. Yeah, I know y'all don't like it. Um, and so the church comes in and says, no, you're wrong. This is right. And they start to change the world around them. They're still associating. I mean, you had, um, let's see, I think it was, who was it? Constantine? No, Diocletian. There's this old Roman Empire Diocletian who actually started one of the worst persecutions of Christians ever. Um, his wife and all of his kids were Christians, which is weird. So they were finding their ways into key, like, key strategic households and actually was able to affect the people around them because they're like, just because you're not a Christian, I'm not going to associate with you. Because I'm a Christian, I should associate with you instead. Um, so what was number one? We are set apart to be a community. Number two, we are set apart for the sake of others. And then we are set apart to be in the world and not of this world, right? Um, here at Supper Club, I'm challenging you all is to, to figure out the best way to walk that line. I almost, I almost did a walk the line title like the Johnny Cash, um, but I was like, nah, it's really cheesy. So I didn't. But 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we can use it later. Another sermon, yep. But trying to find the best way to walk that line without crossing it. How do we become a community set apart for the sake of others? Um, I don't have the answers, and so if you're looking for an answer, sorry. This is more of a, let's think about this together, because I'm, I'm not the individual, I'm a community. We're supposed to figure this out together, right? But I do know that how we present the gospel of Jesus isn't nearly as important as how we present ourselves to the world through our actions and through the things that we believe, and, and holding fast to those, even when the rest of the world around us says, you're wrong, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I'm just going to end with this, this, uh, idea here. Um, the last thing that we talked about in my history class regarding this paper that I wrote was the one thing that pretty much everybody in the class got from Stark, even though he had a lot of really weird, um, theories and stuff was, and this is coined by my professor, so I'm, I'm stealing it from him. But he noticed that belonging always preceded believing. And so, so um, what I'm challenging us here today is how do we, as the big church and as Supper Club individually or specifically, be a place of belonging? Because I've heard it too many times where people say, you know what? I don't want them to be part of our small group or I don't want them to be part of our youth group or I don't want them to be part of our church because... Um, they don't love Jesus like I do, or they don't, they're not good enough Christians, or, you know, they're too sinful. That's the exact opposite of what God's calling us to be. We're supposed to be people say, I know you might not love Jesus like I do. That's why I encourage you to be with me so I can explain why and show you why and have you experience the love of God so that you can be maybe where I am and we can go further together, you know? And so belonging precedes believing let us be a community set apart for the sake of others. Let us be in the world, but not of the world. And let's pray. Okay? Okay. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Um, thank you for this message, and thank you for this group of amazing, amazing people. I love being able to come here and seeing just how you're moving in everybody's lives. Um, having people on radio shows and speaking at churches in other states and being able to uh, have fellowship together and be a community that is set apart, that is on a hill where it can be the most effective so it can see and reach the most people, Lord God, because we are called to make disciples. God, we are called to bring people into the kingdom. If we're not growing, then there's something wrong, God. And so I just ask that this, this message will be able to um, be effective, that you bless the hands who made the food tonight, and that we can go for the rest of this day and the rest of our week with this new found strength in your word and in our place here being set apart for you. In your name we pray, amen.